Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Mark 14. Mark chapter 14, we'll pick up the reading in verse 12. This is God's Word. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as had been told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new. In the kingdom of God, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, now as we have confessed that this word stands forever, we would ask that this word would stand true in our own hearts. You would now attend this word by the power of the Holy Spirit as we sit here and consider it together. We would pray that we would find this word to be both a comfort to us, teaching us about who you are and what you've done, but also a challenge to us, bringing about areas where we need conviction, urging us and nudging us on in the Christian life in areas where greater conformity and obedience to your commands is needed. We would find ourselves warned and exhorted. We would find ourselves comforted and encouraged. That most of all, we would find ourselves having met you. And that you have changed our lives. Lord, we believe in the power of your word now. In belief, we as attend this word with you and ask now that you would meet us. Come now, in Christ's name, amen. It was a few weeks ago, I was invited to be a part of a meeting, a meeting that was going to be a difficult meeting, one of those meetings where it was 
it was good to have a third party present, a meeting where someone could take notes, so to speak, and serve the effective accountability in the course of that meeting. And I was uh, the person who was chosen to be uh, that third party. Or a few minutes into the meeting where it looked like things were going uh, well, and then uh, it took a turn, where suddenly the spirit in the room changed and the tensions rose with uh, one word out of the mouth of one of the parties that put everyone there on edge. The words that came out of the mouth of that individual was, well, it all depends on what you bring to the table. That's what they said. It all depends on what you bring to the table. You've probably heard that phrase, bring to the table. It's a, it's a phrase that we use uh, metaphorically to describe what is it that we're carrying? What all are we bringing? What's the fullness of what we're about in this particular circumstance or that particular negotiation? What is it that we're going to bring to the table? Some of you have closed on houses before, and you know that the lawyer and the real estate agent says something like, how much are you planning to bring to the closing table? And you might say, oh, I think I'm going to bring this or, or that. But the fact of the matter is what you're actually going to bring is going to be clear pretty soon. When everybody's gathered at that table and what is written on that check is what you have brought to the table. No more and no less. This passage, in some sense, is really utilizing that very notion, that idea of bringing things to the table. And what we find in this passage is that there are things that we bring to the table when it comes to the story that's unfolding before us. And there are things that God brings to the table in the story that's unfolding before us. And we see that what we bring to the table is in desperate need of what he brings to the table. And that for the closing of redemption, for the meeting out of the back and forth of the negotiations for the salvation of the souls of God's people, it's utterly dependent on what he brings to the table. As we look at this passage together, I want us to consider it under those very headings. What it is that God himself brings to the table and what it is that we bring to the table. And then I want to conclude by noting the fact that what he brings to the table is far more important than what we bring. Now at this point in Jesus' life, it's what we might say code red. For weeks now, the religious leaders have been on the offensive trying to catch Jesus in a fit of words, trying to do something of which they can levy a charge and ultimately destroy him. Every day it has seemed, as we've studied the Gospel of Mark, that this threat has heightened 
It's grown. And now on the evening of Passover, the tension is at a fever pitch. And the reason it's at a fever pitch is not simply because of the attacks that have come from the religious leaders, those outside the ranks of Jesus' disciples. But last week, if you were with us, there was a note in the passage that made it very clear that there was now someone within the ranks of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who had it in for Jesus. It was going to be ultimately an inside job that was going to place Jesus in the hands of his outside attackers. We're told that Jesus' own disciple had struck a deal with these religious leaders to turn over Jesus at an opportune time and to betray him. But before that deal goes down, the most anticipated meal of the year has to take place. Did you hear it that, the way I said it? The most anticipated meal of the year had to take place. But some of you are thinking, it's not yet November. I haven't even begun the preparations for Thanksgiving. Of course, that's not the meal that we have in view. That might be, in our context, the most anticipated meal of the year. But the most anticipated meal of the year in the first century for an Israelite was clearly the Passover feast. Jesus, in this text, gives very specific instructions to his disciples, very particular preparations to his disciples about where this meal is going to take place and how they find out about where this meal is going to be, what they are to look for, a man carrying a water jar, and what they are to say to him as they enter the house, and all of these sort of code-like instructions that are given to the disciples simply Note the importance of this meal, first of all, that Jesus, as one of the commentators put it, is trying to control as much as possible the environment of the protection of this meal because threat is everywhere. Betrayer is afoot, religious leaders out to get him. He needs to find a place before all of this goes down to celebrate the Last Supper, to institute the Lord's Supper. To remember together with his disciples the Passover meal because he has got some of the most important things he needs to communicate to them before the unfolding of the crucifixion drama. It's clear that Jesus has gone to great lengths already to prepare for this meal, putting some of these very particular instructions in place and guiding his disciples to it. Because this particular Passover meal and its importance cannot be overstated. This particular meal is going to reveal the fact that he is about to be betrayed and his betrayer is at hand. This particular meal is going to radically reinterpret the whole of the Old Testament and the paradigmatic event of redemptive history, the Exodus, and the Passover feast as related directly to him. This meal is ultimately going to have the disciples' heads swimming with mystery and intrigue. And by the end of the night, the reality of what this meal symbolized is going to begin to unfold before their very eyes. And seeing all of this history laden with meaning and purpose, Jesus is protecting this event, this last quote-unquote sacred moment with his disciples that he might eat with them, as Kent Hughes puts it, the most important meal ever eaten in the history of the world.
Now, we're used to commemorating uh, events, significant events with meals. We've all been to rehearsal dinners. We've all been to uh, wedding receptions. We, we have birthday dinners. We have, of course, national holidays has already been alluded to. But this Passover feast was hundreds, even thousands of years in the making. A traditions laden with such history that the people of Israel, it had been well woven into the spiritual fabric of their soul as a nation. Nothing was more anticipated than this meal as an act of worship unto Yahweh, the God who had redeemed them out of the clutches of Egypt. And it provided them the freedom from slavery and redemption they needed. Because we are removed in history so far from this meal, it's appropriate for us to ask the question, what's this meal like? How does it actually, well, go down? What are the pieces of it? Why is it important? Well, as you might imagine, there are a number of historical recountings of of the celebration of Passover given to us by historians. And though we can't be entirely certain of, of everything that took place when the disciples gathered with Jesus, we can have a pretty good sense of what it is that took place in that meal. First, they gathered. Jesus, we're told, arrived with the twelve. Even though it's not entirely clear both in history or in text, if it was merely the twelve or whether there, was, there were other disciples that also gathered in this upper room. It was a large room, fully furnished, we're told, ready to host this meal. It also appears in terms of the way the text unfolds that potentially there would be more in the room, especially around that discussion of betrayal, which we'll get to later when, when Jesus makes that shocking announcement and they all query, is it, is it I? And his response is, well, it is one of the twelve. A little bit of an unusual response if it is only the twelve that are there in that room when he's already said it's one of you. So maybe he's narrowing the playing field. We're not sure all of who's there, but what we do see clearly in the text is that Jesus is, well, operating like the patriarch. He's operating like the father of the family, what the father would do, which was to gather the family together on Passover. And before, well, after six o'clock and before midnight would have walked through the elements of this beloved service. They would have started with a cup of, of wine. Blessing the whole of the meal. They, they would have then served the unleavened bread. That, that bread which uh, the, the Israelites years ago had eaten before uh, they had exited uh, Egypt. Because they didn't have time to put yeast in the bread and let the bread rise. Uh, they had to move quickly and so they ate unleavened bread. That was the tradition as a part of the Passover. They ate unleavened bread that night. It would have been one of the first elements. Alongside those elements would have been the, the, the bitter herbs. The bitter herbs symbolically representing the bitterness of slavery, of life uh, in Egypt. The 
pain, the suffering, the the loss of the hundreds of years that the people of Israel spent in affliction in Egypt. It was to remind them that they were under bitter oppression. And then the stewed fruit, which they also would have dipped their unleavened bread in, a fruit that well, according to scholars and historians, was muddled together, uh, stewed with a, a bit of a sauce, uh, with a kind of tackiness to its uh, texture, some arguing even red in, in nature, uh, a mix of, of desert-like uh, fruit, maybe even clayish, uh, reminding them of the bricks. And the the mortar that was used in their slavery, that they were a people who had to labor even making bricks without straw under the, the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh. Then for all of these things were consumed, really the heart of the meal came. It, and it's what we think of when we think of Passover. What do you think of? You think of the lamb. You think of the blood put on the... The the doorposts of the the homes there in Egypt, the night that the death angel came into the camp and the judgment of the Lord laying low the firstborn of any family and of livestock as well, of, of, of any household not with the blood over their doors. The Passover lamb would have been brought to the table and would have been feasted on as the main course in the meal, in each of these elements, it was the, well, the patriarch, the father, the head of the household's responsibility to remind the people, his family usually, of the story of redemption. The bitter herbs, the stewed fruit, the, the unleavened bread, the, the lamb, to remind them of the story of, of redemption. And in fact, as tradition tells us, the, the, the youngest son was, was prompted in the meal to actually ask the question, Dad, what do these symbols mean? What does all of this mean? And, and he's saying, oh, son, I'm glad you asked. Uh, we're here to remember the redemption and salvation of our God. They would have sung They would have already have sung on their way into Jerusalem. You remember as we looked at Palm Sunday, now uh, several months ago, they would have sung the Psalms of uh, Ascent. One of the Psalms of Ascent we actually used this morning in the call to worship. But they would have sung in the Passover what were called the Hallel Psalms. You can hopefully hear in the word Hallel the word Hallelujah, a word that means to praise and if you hear the word, praise the Lord, right? That jaw on the end of it, or yah, uh, appropriately pronounced, is the short for Yahweh. Praise the Lord. The Hallel Psalms were praise psalms. They're Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. They would have sung 113, 14, and 15 about midway through the meal. And then by the end of the meal, they would have sung uh, 14, oh, 15, 16, 17, and 18. And would have concluded the meal singing the Hallel Psalms. As you can see, this meal is full of drama. It's full of storytelling. It's it's full of remembering your history of your ancestors. And in fact, that's the way 
Well, that's the way that the Israelites would have understood it. Uh, They would have been inhabiting, so to speak, the story of redemption, identifying with those ancestors of old who saw the wonders of God's redemption, who participated in it, of which they are now the fruit of generationally. They would have understood that as their story. Sometimes I'll ask you, when we read the Old Testament, do you consider the Old Testament your story? Do you consider what happened to Moses? And do you consider what happened to Joshua? Do you consider what happened to David and all of the patriarchs and the major and minor characters throughout the Old Testament? Do you read it as if it is your family history? Because it's your family history. It's your spiritual legacy. They read it as if it was theirs. They identified with it and inhabited the divine drama of it. It was to them a kind of case in point of the very reality of redemption. It wasn't merely a teaching. It wasn't entering into. It was a divine drama of the greatest work of redemption that God had ever done in Israel's history. I was recently watching with my boys. We were watching on Netflix that survival story documentary show called Alone. Are you familiar with it? It's a wonderful story. Don't go watch it. It's wonderful. It's gruesome at times. One of the particular parts in the story where these, these contestants are out in the, well, the frozen tundra for 50 days, 70 days, 100 days with 10 survival items, and they've got to somehow make their way uh, to the end, usually because there's a million-dollar prize at the end of this. And, and yet some of them, in very deep ways, are connected to, to stories of their family or their legacy or their history. And, and one of the contestants in the, in the recent series actually said, she lost, but, but she said, I, I love this experience because... It helped me enter into and share in the reality of my ancestors. The story of past. The way in which people used to live. The the struggle of it and the joy of it. The revelations that come in it. And the things that we have to sacrifice to gain it. The hard things that we go through that become for us the sweet things that the Lord redeems. In some sense, the annual feasts and festivals of the people of Israel were very much like that. Though they were in the promised land, uh, though they often were receiving incredible blessing, they were entering back into the bread of affliction, as they would say when they ate the unleavened bread. The bread of affliction, as if it was their very own, because it was in union with the promises of God. In the midst of this sacred meal, something really quite remarkable happens. Jesus breaks with tradition. Based upon the typical meal, Jesus had led his disciples and maybe others through the cup of wine, the unleavened bread, the herbs, the fruit, of the Passover lamb. He's likely now at the third cup in the Passover meal. And as he does so, he comes to that third cup and we're told in verse 22, that he says, take, this is my body. And then he takes that cup, after having passed out that bread, and says, this 
is my blood. The blood of the covenant which is poured out from any. Now if you can imagine it, the people of Israel have for centuries celebrated this meal as the apex of God's redemptive history. And now Jesus, in the midst of this Passover meal, is identifying the heart of the meal with himself. God's greatest redemptive plan, God's greatest salvation presented to the people of Israel, His rescue from slavery out of Egypt, was it really just about those things, it was about me. All of these things are about me. This bread, this unleavened bread, it's about me. This lamb, well, it's about me. This blood that protected you in the midst of judgment, well, that's, that's me. This Moses who led you from physical slavery into freedom is is a reflection of me because I'm here to lead you out of spiritual slavery into true and lasting freedom. It's all about me is what Jesus is saying. In the midst of the Passover meal, he institutes the Lord's Supper, the fulfillment of what the Passover pointed to. He's teaching his disciples that he has come to bring a greater redemptive event than the event of Exodus in the Old Testament. He is coming to lead his people out to an eternal promised land. To a place where no enemy will ever rout them. Where no attack will lead them astray. A place where they will enter and they will hear good and faithful servant enter into the rest of your master. He has gone to lead them to that kind of place by His power, by His grace. Jesus here is telling us what it is that God is bringing to the table. And what God is bringing to the table is He's bringing Himself to the table. He's bringing His precious Son to the table. In order to redeem the people of Israel, we can never rely upon the blood of bulls and goats. For they cannot take away sin. We need the precious Lamb of God, which John had seen in the opening days of Jesus' life when he looked at him as he passed by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Lamb that we need. And Jesus is saying, I am that Lamb. When we come to the Lord's table every week, we're coming to the Lord's Supper. That is to say that the Lord is the host of this table. He is the one who prepares, just as He prepared for the disciples. And made a space in that upper room, gave them specific instructions, just as He led them through all of the details of the Passover, so that they would remember the story of redemption. It's Jesus who leads us to this table. He is the host. But don't you see that Jesus is going a step farther? He's telling us that He is also the meal. He is also the very essence of the thing that we partake in. He is the fulfillment of all of what the Old Testament pointed to. And it's really more, isn't it, than remembrance. We, we, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we read earlier in our passage, that one of the things that we're supposed to do when we come to the Lord's Supper is to, to remember 
But when we hear that word, remember, as important as memory is in the key of this, it's not, it's not merely an intellectual uh, re-entering of information into our mental landscape. Uh, memory is, is much deeper. It's not simply just recall. It's, it's bringing the reality of the thing that we've forgotten back into the frame of our life so that we receive its benefits. This is why Reformed theology, when, well, when we talk about the Lord's Supper, talk about it differently than, than Roman Catholics, and we actually talk about it differently than, than our typical Congregationalists or, or Baptists. Uh, Roman Catholics, when they hear those words here in Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 25, and they hear, this is my body, they take it to mean that the Lord's Supper, these elements that are before us, and magically change or transform into the very essence of the actual body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you have probably heard of the doctrine of transubstantiationism. I know you use that word every day as you're running around in Franklin. You're just talking with the cashier at Kroger. You just drop it in conversation regularly. But you hear in that word, transubstantiate, transforming substance, right? The substance of the thing is not ordinary bread. It becomes, in the institution of the Lord's Supper, the actual body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It transforms. You will often hear me when I pray at the Lord's Supper that the Lord would set aside these ordinary elements. I'm emphasizing, when I say that, the fact that they are ordinary. That this, what you're eating is actually well, it's bread. It's not actually metaphor, metamorphosizing into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Reformed theology understood that when we remember, it's not that we're transforming something back, but it's that we're reattaching ourselves to the meaningfulness of that thing by virtue of the power of the Spirit. You see, remembrance is not on the other side in terms of like a normal sort of memorial view of the Lord's Supper, and that is the main thing that happens when you come to the Lord's Supper is that your memory is stirred. That would mean that the main important part of the Supper is what goes on in you. We actually believe that the Lord is at work, and what He brings to the table is even more important than what you bring to the table. That more than mere stirring of memory is happening, but not the transformation of the substance into something that it is not, but instead a godly means of grace is taking place. Where these ordinary elements are set apart to, that we might commune with the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit. You know, that's really what happens when we truly remember. Uh, you know, that word remember, to, to remember something. We'll put it in the opposite. You'll hear it easier. When we dismember something, we cut it off. We remove it. If I was to, God forbid, dismember my hand, you know, using a handsaw at my house, which I would try to never do because I would dismember my hand. But if, if that happened and my hand was dismembered, what would happen to that hand? Not a trick question. It would die. Why? Because it would be cut off from what it needs to live. It would be dismembered. If it's remembered, 
If I find a really good surgeon in the area, and you better believe I'll be looking for him or her, and it's remembered, I'm not simply going, oh, that's what a hand is used for. It includes using the mind, but it means that the life of the reflection is now pulsating through the soul afresh. You see, this is actually what happens on Sunday morning, right? When we're sitting in the presence of the Lord, and maybe it's at confession of sin, maybe it's in the midst of a sermon, maybe it's when you come to the Lord's Supper, that all of a sudden the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ or the truth of God's Word comes home to your heart. And most of the time, for many of us in this room, it's something that we know, but we remember. And when we remember, it's not merely mental, but spiritually life-giving. The life of the thing is woven back in. That's what we understand is happening in the Lord's Supper. It's a means of grace to us. When we remember the Lord Jesus Christ, the very life of the thing is brought into our lives by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit. I think this is, well, this is the essence of what it means to fellowship at the Lord's Supper. You know, that's the word that's used very often of the Lord's Supper. Paul, multiple times, 1 Corinthians 10, maybe one of the best examples, says that when we drink of the cup and when we eat of the bread, we participate in its communion. We share in, and the word he uses there is koinia. It's the word for for fellowship, that we come together with Christ. Our union with Christ is invigorated, it's enlivened, and our union with one another is invigorated and enlivened as we come to the Lord's Supper. Jesus wants us to know that when we come to take the bread and the wine. It's a wonder when you begin to realize how valuable the Lord's Supper is that we often don't, well, we don't prize it as we ought, do we? And I think for a congregation like our own, one of the most easy things, because we do adhere to weekly communion, is to simply go through the motions, isn't it? Um, to not take into consideration and awareness the sweetness of the communion that is the Lord's table. Uh, the value of that, that we, we believe that God Himself in Christ through the Spirit meets with us in the table. What an amazing reality. Don't you see when you come to the table what God is bringing to the table? You see what he's bringing to the table? He's bringing Christ to the table to secure objectively your salvation. But as you come to the table and you practice communion, what's he bringing? His grace in Christ to you week after week. He's making himself known to you. Now, why is this so important that we understand that he brings these things to the table? Because quite honestly, friends, and briefly, because of what we bring to the table. Why is it so important that, that this is what God brings to the table? Well, it's because of what we bring to the table. And you see what we bring to the table. Notice how shocking it would have been for the disciples as they're eating the unleavened bread in the Passover meal. And Jesus uses this moment to make a grand announcement. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And you can almost hear the murmur, can't you? Kind of run through, kind of run through the, the supper. We're told that sorrow overtakes them when they, they hear this. And, 
And one after another, they begin asking the Lord Jesus Christ, is it, is it I? Is, is it me that you're, you're speaking of? And looking around the room, Jesus says, it's one of the, the twelve, one who, one who is dipping his bread into the dish with me. Now this is, of course, a classic enigmatic statement from Jesus. He's telling us who without telling us who. It's one of the twelve disciples. It's, it's one of you. But, but he doesn't tell us his name. He doesn't mention the name at this point of Judas. Now we know from the other Gospels, don't we, that... Well, we, we know that Jesus actually speaks to Judas at this meal. That he says to him near the end of that meal to go and to go do what it is that he has planned to do quickly. Presumably not overheard by the disciples or at least, as the text indicates, not understood. Some believing that maybe it was an act of caring for the poor. A task that was typical during Passover to give charity and alms. Nothing could be further from the truth. What do we bring to the table? Well, interestingly, we didn't read this section. We'll actually glance at it next week together. But we'll see that all of the disciples, he says, will fall away from me. Now, Peter is going to, you know, he's going to get fighting mad about that statement. He's going to defend himself that even if he has to go to the death for Jesus, he's not going, going to deny Jesus. And, of course, he will before the cock crows the next morning. No less than three times. Do you see that what we bring to the table is the problem? We bring to the table denial. We bring to the table forsaking. We bring to the table betrayal. We bring to the table sin. We bring to the table sin. This is why it's so important that God brings what He brings to the table. What does He bring to the table? Well, He brings to the table first... Our judgment, not on us. That's what he brings to the table. You do realize that every Sunday that what's gathered before you is the pieces of the Lord Jesus Christ, his body broken, his blood spilled. Do you know what that is? That's your judgment in Christ. That's what he lays on the table for you. The wonder of the judgment that we deserve has now been given and ultimately satisfied by Christ is what he brings to the table. We need to hear that because we see that Judas in this passage, who brings the ultimate kind of betrayal, all of our sin is betrayal. It's forsaking of God for something else in this world, but there's a kind of betrayal, a Judas-like betrayal of an ultimate kind that's unrepentant that very clearly through the words of the Lord Jesus Christ lead to ultimate judgment. Jesus says, woe is he. It would be better for Judas to have not even been born. A word of shivering judgment coming from the mouth of Jesus. Do you see, if the judgment for you is not found on the table that God has laid for you in Christ, then the judgment will fall on you, is what this text is teaching us. This is why it's so important that we understand what God brings to the table and that we trust Him in it. But when we see our judgment on display on this table, what else do we say? 
we see his grace. Because the judgment has been satisfied. And all of those who have trusted by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ now have received from Christ his very righteousness so that we're welcomed and accepted into the presence of the Lord. Notice, you are welcome to come to the table. Jesus says, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All who have trusted in me alone for salvation, come to this table and feed and eat and drink and buy without money. For the full of the cost has been paid in Christ. You see, that's what God has brought to the table. And what God has brought to the table, you see, removes what we bring to the table. Expunges our record. Wipes us clean, makes us white as snow. Some of us, as we come into this room today, we are riddled with what it is that we bring to the table. And I want you to know it's no match for what God has brought to the table in Christ today. He wants you to know that if you have trusted alone in Him for salvation, the the slate has been wiped clean. The record is clear. Now walk in the freedom that is in Christ. That's what He's calling us to. To the joy of following our Savior. Listen, all of us know our susceptibility, don't we? Isn't it interesting in this text? It's not as if when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, everybody goes, yep, it's Judas. Isn't that interesting? It's not as if they all just sort of, oh, he's always been shady. He's always shady in our minds, isn't he? It's interesting, I was glancing at Leonardo da Vinci's painting this week of the Last Supper and, and, and Judas in, in the description of, uh, of, of that, uh, in, that painting is envisioned with a bit of a darker shade than the rest of the disciples. Now, da Vinci, of course, is doing something theological in that, not merely physical, but that is how we view him. Notice it wasn't obvious to the disciples. Here's what's interesting. They all were concerned it was them. Take that in for a moment. You ever been concerned that you might be the betrayer? You ever been concerned that you might be the deserter? This text is saying you are. There's a reason why that haunts you. Because at the heart level of every one of the disciples, John and Peter and, and James, the closest of Jesus' disciple, he says, all of you will fall away. Here's the hope that you have. I am holding you in the palm of my hand. For it is ultimately disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, not your grasp on me that gets you into the heavenly places. It is my grasp on you. I am bringing that to the table, that my blood will hold you when your grip on me is loose. The confidence of the gospel in this passage is the fact that Jesus is the one Who's holding fast holds us. Well, one of the ponderings I had this week in conclusion was just, well, the wonder of the fact that Jesus knew who his betrayer was and he didn't try to stop him. (laughs) He knew who he was and actually urged him to go forth and go do what is quickly. I would not do that in that context. I would, uh, I would have a plan B, C, and D to keep him from doing what it is that he was going to do. But you see, uh, Jesus' mission 
was to go to the cross for you and me. It wasn't Judas's betrayal that ultimately led Jesus to the cross. Notice what Jesus says in this text. The Son of Man will go to what is written of him. Even in the midst of betrayal and the surprise of betrayal, Jesus knows everything that's happening. And so know this, that your betrayal and your desertions and your denials and your falling short, they're not taking Jesus by surprise. What he is calling on you now in heart is that you might be surprised that he knows that and that he loves you and that he's calling you home to him. Let that love ravish your heart until the whole of your heart is the Lord's. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would indeed teach us these rich truths in our hearts. That we would find, Lord, a richness in the table today and thus forward in knowing that you are the one who has brought everything we need to the table. Father, hear this prayer now and meet us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.